Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Sister Citizen, Shame, Stereotypes, and Black Women in America by Melissa V. Harris Perry. We are on Chapter 7, which is entitled Michelle, and we are beginning a segment entitled Jezebel and Michelle's Body. As the married mother of two young daughters, Michelle Obama was not a particularly good candidate for the projections about immoral hypersexuality. Except for the, quote, baby mama, end quote, episode, the licitious discussions about Michelle centered on her, not on her sexual behavior, but on her physical body. Interestingly, one of the most profane came from Erin Aubrey Kaplan, an African-American woman writing for Salon who gushed with ecstatic familiarity, quote, first lady got back, end quote. Kaplan wrote of the first lady's posterior, quote, it is a solid, round, black, Class A bootay. Tries Michelle might to cover it with those Mammy Eisenhower skirts and sheathed dresses meant to reassure mainstream voters the butt would not be denied. End quote. Only because it was written by an African American woman whose identity shielded her from being labeled racist or sexist was this article publishable in the mainstream media. But it still set off a firestorm, particularly among black feminist writers who denounced the piece as both derogatory and irrelevant. One black woman blogger commented, quote, My problem is that articles about Michelle Obama's wardrobe, booty, and mom duties are what is fit to publish, what is seen as relevant to a mass audience, end quote. One such article was a March 2009 New York Times op-ed by Maureen Dow titled, quote, Should Michelle Cover Up, end quote. The piece was written in response to Michelle's having worn a sleeveless purple dress to President Obama's first address to a joint session of Congress. Dowd's article rehearses some familiar American anxieties about black women's bodies. She expresses a sort of terror that Michelle is a symbol of overt sexuality that should be covered and shrouded so as to not distract men of power. In the piece, Dowd claims that it is David Brooks, her fellow editorial writer, who suffers these anxieties, not her, but Dow does seem irritated about the stimulating effect Michelle's dress had on the congressman. Dow echoes the white women of antebellum plantations who fretted about maintaining the virtue of their husbands and sons in the presence of scantily, scantily clad enslaved women who were thought to be sexually insatiable. Even as Dow replays the Jezebel anxiety, she employs the pervasive misrepresentation of the strong black woman. She, she revels in the idea of Michelle as a powerful superwoman who could easily, quote, wind up and punch out Rush Limbaugh, Bernie Madoff, and all the corporate creeps who ripped off America, end quote. Dowd is tapping her own racial imagination when she perceives the first lady as capable of engaging in a street brawl with grown men. This fantasy of the super strong, masculine black woman who could easily best a man in a physical altercation is a crooked image perpetuated in black popular culture by comedians like Martin Lawrence, Tyler Perry, and the Wayan Brothers. All black men who dress as women in comic routines that portray black women as masculine and outrageously pugnacious. The public dissection of Michelle Obama into body parts, first her butt and then her arms, is reminiscent of the treatment of Sartre Bartman, the so-called hot-and-top Venus. Recall that Bartman was a koikikoi woman from Southern Africa who became an exhibit in London's Piccadilly Circus as a result of her supposedly abnormal sexual organs. 
In his discussion of the dissection of Bartman, Sander Gilman writes, quote, The antithesis of European sexual mores and beauties is embodied in the black and the essential black. The lowest rung on the great chain of being is the Hottentot. The physical appearance of the Hottentot is, indeed, the central 19th century icon for sexual difference between the European and the black, end quote. By Gilman's reading, this koikikoi woman's body becomes the icon of savagery and difference marking the scientific projects of the 20th century. It is impossible to ignore this history when a black woman's body is rhetorically dissected, observed, and displayed as remarkable. Yet Michelle Obama's choice of the sleeveless dress and her later decision to wear shorts in public can be understood as an attempt to straighten the images in the crooked room. I take her wardrobe choices as evidence that Michelle Obama is actively using her role as first lady to cultivate a particular representation of femininity that is meant to push back against a number of racialized gender stereotypes. Michelle Obama is capturing a particular, though arguably narrow, definition of femininity that is often denied to black women. For example, she chose President Thomas Jefferson's portrait as the backdrop for her official White House photo. There she is, the first black first lady in a sleeveless dress, and behind her is Thomas Jefferson, who raped the teenage bondswoman, Sally Hemings, the half-sister of his wife, and enslaved his own children. Michelle's photo, ex- Michelle's photo executes a self-conscious taunting that reaches across the span of history to repudiate the violence and brutality suffered by so many enslaved women. Michelle stands boldly in a White House where she is mistress, not slave. Her body is for her. She is not reduced to a mule or a breeder. Her children belong to her, and she is free to love and protect them. It is an act of resistance for a black woman to demand that her body belong to herself for her pleasure, her adornment, even her vanity. Because in the United States, black women's bodies have often been valued only to the extent that they produce wealth and pleasure for others. When Michelle insists on audacious, sleeveless femininity, she strikes back against the reduction of black women to hypersexual breeders or asexual laborers. Hers is an important departure from the dissembling strategies of 20th century club women who sought to prove their respectability through prim sexual ethics. Michelle refuses to be ashamed of her distinctive black woman's body and all the attributes and anxieties it evokes. Rather than shrouding herself in shame, She sews her body with surprising, self-confident ease. Okay, and then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. And what stands out to me the most about that is uh, Michelle Obama posing for her White House picture in front of Thomas Jefferson and the how that just highlights some of the hypocrisies of of America. And and I think one of the things that and this is a, a very hard thing to try to balance but one of the things I've tried to balance is appreciating or not even appreciating but valuing how far as a people we have come as black people that we have come while also valuing the circumstances in which we still exist in and I say that to say that though there is something not though but there is obviously something triumphant about a black person, a black man, a black woman being in the White House and being the president and the first lady and how far black people have came. There's also 
there's also something that is daunting about the fact that in the time that Michelle Obama was the first lady and Barack Obama was the president, black people still endured disproportionate negative impacts of this society. Black people were still shot by police. Black people were still routinely over-policed. Black people were still routinely undereducated. Black people were still routinely underemployed. And as good as it may feel to want to be proud of the individual people who have been able to break through some of these glass ceilings, it's hard to not still be... uh, it's hard to not remain conscious of the masses of black people who still cannot rise through that black that who still cannot rise through that glass ceiling. Uh, and I know that was a little off topic from what we read about, but I feel that that was just my some of my first thoughts. Uh. <clears throat> Okay, Mammy and Michelle's Children. Throughout this book, I have discussed the problematic ways that black motherhood has been understood in the United States. Recall, for example, that black pregnancy has often been a source of public shaming and public policy efforts to control fertility. Toni Morrison used the stories of enslaved black mothers to depict the most horrifying effects of American slavery. Her novel, Beloved, reveals the unimaginable pain some black mothers experienced because their children were profitable for their enslavers. Enslaved black women did not birth children. They produced merchandisable units of labor. Despite the patrilineal norm, despite the patrilineal norm that governed free society, enslaved mothers were forced to pass their slave status on to their infants. The first inheritance black mothers gave to black children in America was chattel bondage. When they became free citizens, black women's reproduction was no longer directly tied to profit. In this new context, black mothers became the object of fierce eugenics efforts. In Killing the Black Body, Dorothy Roberts explains how the state employed involuntary sterilization, pressured women to submit to long-term birth control, and restricted state benefits for large families as a means to control black women's reproduction. Black mothers were again blamed as the central cause of social and economic decline in the early 1990s when news stories and popular films took up the theme of, quote, crack babies, end quote. Crack babies were the living, squealing, suffering evidence of pathological black motherhood, and American citizens were going to have to pay the bill for the children of these bad mothers. Susan Douglas and Meredith Michaels, authors of The Mommy Myth, explained that media created the, quote, crack baby, end quote, phenomenon as part of a broader history that understands black motherhood as inherently pathological. They write, quote, It turned out there was no convincing evidence that use of crack actually caused abnormal babies, even though the media insisted this was so. Media coverage of crack babies serves as a powerful cautionary tale about the inherent fitness of poor or lower-class African-American women to be mothers at all, end quote. This long tradition of pathologizing, pathologizing, excuse me, this long tradition of pathologizing black motherhood is the backdrop against which Michelle Obama announced that she planned to serve as mom in chief. Many progressive feminists, 
who had hoped for a more aggressive policy agenda, were distressed with her assertion of motherhood as her primary role. Michelle Obama is a graduate of Princeton University and Harvard Law School who has spent her career as an effective advocate for urban communities and their fraught relationship with powerful institutions. She is smart, capable, and independent. She maintained her own career and ambitions throughout her husband's early forays into politics and even during his election to the U.S. Senate. While no one expected her to commute to a 9-to-5 job from the White House, many hoped that she would take on an independent political role in the Obama administration. These people were disappointed when she chose to focus on supporting her daughters through their school transition and providing companionship to her husband as he governs. White feminists in particular saw this as Michelle confronting, excuse me, white feminists in particular saw this as Michelle conforming to restrictive gender norms. I see it differently. Michelle Obama is surprisingly thwarting expectations of black women's role in the family and representing a different image of black women than we are used to encountering in this country. As mom in chief, Michelle Obama, as mom in chief, excuse me, as mom in chief, Michelle Obama, she subverts a deep, powerful and old public discourse on black women as bad mothers. Enslaved black women had no control over their children. Their sons and daughters could be sold away without their consent and brutally disciplined without their protection. When a black woman claims public ownership over her children, she helps rewrite this ugly history. In the modern era, black mothers have been publicly shamed as crack mothers, welfare queens, and matriarchs of fatherless families. Black single motherhood is blamed for social ills ranging from crime to drugs to urban disorder. Michelle Obama is an important corrective to this distorted view. She and her own mother, Grandma Robinson, are kind, devoted, loving, and firm parents who challenge the negative images of black motherhood that dominate the public discourse. Michelle Obama's insistence on focusing on her children is also a sound repudiation of the mammy role. Mammy is a symbol of black women as competent, strong, and sassy, yet she is beloved among white people because she uses all of her skills and talents to serve white domestic interests. Mammy makes sure that white children are well-fed, that white women are protected from the difficulties of household labor, and that white men have a safe and comfortable home to return to at the end of the day. She ensures order in the white world by ignoring her own family and community. Her devotion and attention are for others, not for herself or her family. Calling on Michelle Obama to take a more active policy role while her children are still young is, in a way, requesting that she use her role as First Lady to serve as the National Mammy. Michelle refused. Instead of assuming that the broader public sphere was necessarily more important than the needs of her own children, she made a choice that has been denied to generations of black women. There is a danger in this strategy. Michelle Obama's traditionalist public persona could be used as a weapon against women who do not conform to this domestic ideal. The majority of black mothers are working women who struggle to raise their children without husbands and often without adequate financial support from partners or the state. It will be easy to use Michelle Obama's choice, a choice fostered by a unique circumstance of privilege, to reassert that black women who labor for pay outside the home are inadequate parents. Given the pervasive myths of black women as bad mothers, this narrative could easily be deployed to undercut support for public policies focused on creation of a just, an equal political and economic structure, and to focus instead on, quote, marriage, end quote, and, quote, family values, end quote, as solutions to structural barriers facing black communities. 
At the same time, these conservative discourses have never needed any particular excuse to exist. Michelle Obama's framing herself as mom in chief does not make her complicit in the demonization of black mothers that began long before she became first lady. Her decision does, however, deliver a blow to the mammy image that many might have preferred that she embody. And that brings us to the end of that segment within this chapter. What stands out to me from what we just read is how often in America, specifically for black people, no matter what decision you make or what choices you make or what characteristics you you may possess, there's always a group of people who will try to find a way to negatively politicize it or negatively or find negative connotations to add to it. And so we read, we've read how black women have been vilified as mothers uh, have been called, have been accused of giving birth to crack babies, which didn't truly exist, have been called welfare queens, have been, called emasculating to black men and how this has been used to, uh, again, to vilify these black women. And we see that when Michelle Obama does, is doing basically representing the opposite of all of those traits, she's still vilified in ways. And there's still some uh, negative politicization that, that comes across. And, I just think that that's one of the reasons that it's important to never try to use respectability politics or use like even likability politics to get people to agree with your stances or agree with your ideologies or even get people to try to empathize with the community that you come from. The truth of the matter is that these stereotypes and shame and stigmas and prejudices that exist in this country, they won't be changed by black people trying to conform to them or to adapt to them. They'll only be changed when we as a people decide to destroy them and to not tolerate them. Uh, and so let's move on to this next section of this chapter, which is entitled Sapphire and Michelle's Marriage. In his second book, The Audacity of Hope, Barack Obama recounts the story of the night he delivered the keynote address at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. After he told Michelle that his stomach felt queasy, she hugged him, looked him in the eye and said, quote, just don't screw it up, buddy, end quote. This gentle teasing of her, quote, rock star, end quote, husband was a hallmark of Michelle Obama's self-presentation early in the presidential primary season. She talked about how Barack did not pick up his dirty socks, laughed about how their daughters complained about his snoring, and was honest about how she sometimes felt abandoned in the early years of child rearing. She explicitly refused to worship her husband solely for political purposes, but instead insisted that they were equal partners. Quote, and Barack is very much human, so let's not deify him, because what we do is we deify, and then we're ready to chop it down. People have notions of what a wife's role should be in this process, and it's been a traditional one of blind adoration. My motto is a little different. I think most real marriages are, end quote. 
For some, Michelle's honest assessment of Barack made him seem more human and likable. It allowed many to believe that the Obamas would be models of gender equity in the White House. Others saw Michelle's unwillingness to take on a traditional spousal role as evidence that she was a dominating, overpowering black woman. This specter of the dominating black matriarch is a riff on the angry Sapphire character. As I discussed earlier in this book, the black matriarch first entered the national policy discussion with Daniel Patrick Moynihan's 1965 report, The Negro Family, The Case for National Action which designated black mothers as the principal cause of a culture of pathology that kept black people from achieving equality. Moynihan's research reported the assumed deviance of black families. This deviance was obvious, he opened, because women seemed to have the primary decision-making roles in black households. Michelle Obama has the same Ivy League educational pedigree as her husband. Throughout their marriage, she was an independent wage earner, sometimes drawing a higher salary than he, And because of her husband's political responsibilities, she often took on the role of primary parental caretaker as well. Thus, when she teased her husband, pointed out his faults, and declined to worship him, she did so as an equal partner. For those inclined to see black women through the angles of the crooked room, this independence easily read as deviant and domineering matriarchy. Remember that the crooked room is not only a Excuse me. Remember that the crooked room is not only set askew by the racial inequality of broader society, it is also a problem of sexism within black communities. Black women struggle for recognition both within and outside their own racial group. The belief that black women make inadequately submissive wives is not the exclusive creation of white prejudice. African Americans embrace the image of the strong black woman, and this image figures prominently in the idea of black women as overpowering. For example, during the 2008 campaign, African-American comedian Chris Rock added a new joke to his routine. His premise is that African-American women are dominating shrews unable to allow their husbands to lead in the domestic sphere. His humor assumes both that men are the rightful leaders of the home and that black women's inability to submit to this leadership is pathological. Quote, Barack has a handicap the other candidates don't have. Barack Obama has a black wife. And I don't think a black woman can be the first lady of the United States. Yeah, I said it. A black woman can be president, no problem. First lady? Can't do it. You know why? Because a black woman cannot play the background of, excuse me, because a black woman cannot play the background of a relationship. Just imagine telling your black wife that you're president. Quote, honey, I did it. I won. I'm the president. She responds, no. We the president, and I want my girlfriends in the cabinet. I want Kiki to be the secretary of state. She can fight, end quote. Rock's comic imagination is fueled widely by held assumptions about who black women are in relation to black men. The African-American women are strong, unyielding, and uncompromising, while black men are endangered and emasculated. The image of aggressive black women dominating their male partners persists despite empirical evidence that African-American women are more likely to be victims than aggressors in heterosexual partnerships. Black women suffer higher rates of domestic assault and homicide than women of other racial and ethnic groups. Their romantic attachments are also linked to their growing incarceration rates. Black women's crimes tend to be ancillary to those of their male partners. 
Black women are also the women most likely to face unassisted child rearing and vulnerability to poverty that single parenthood entails. The reality is that Black women's political, social, and economic marginalization ensures that they nearly always, quote, play the Black ground, end quote. But Rock can't get an easy laugh by evoking the familiar stereotype of the Black women. But Rock can get an easy laugh by evoking the familiar stereotype of the domineering Black woman. In contrast to her repu- excuse me, in contrast to her repudiation of Jezebel and Mammy, Michelle Obama more readily accommodated to the anxieties produced by the strong black woman stereotype. She flouted attempts to shame her about her body. She refused the role of Mammy by turning her efforts toward her own hearth, but she found it necessary to diffuse the dangerous image of the angry black matriarch by consciously embracing a softer image. After her pride comment and the Princeton thesis were used to frame her effectively as an, quote, angry black woman, end quote, she noticeably softened her spousal image. While the couple's mutual respect remained evident, Michelle was more frequently photographed with her head on Barack's shoulder, grasping his hand at public events, or evading reporters by stealing brief, romantic walks on the White House grounds. The outspoken Michelle Obama, who made many bristle with anxiety earlier in the campaign, was replaced, by largely, was replaced largely by a woman who evokes a warm feeling when we see her with her husband, her children, and even her dog. Many reporters and scholars expressed anxiety about the ascendance of this kinder, gentler Michelle. They worried that she was being packaged in a way that thwarts her authenticity and undermines the efforts of feminists committed to the notion of women as equal partners in their marriages. Although this worry is not groundless, it is important to remember that as an African-American woman, Michelle Obama is constrained by different stereotypes from those that inhibit white women. After she was depicted as irrationally angry and potentially unpatriotic, the public space for her as an independent but loving wife shrank considerably. As First Lady, Michelle has crafted a more traditional role for herself. She is highly visible, but she has taken on relatively safe issues like childhood literacy, ending childhood obesity, advocacy for women and girls, and support of military families. Even her White House garden is framed more as an initiative for healthy eating than as a commitment to local foods in an effort against global climate change. White, middle-class gender norms in the United States have generally asserted that women belong in the domestic sphere. These norms have limited white women's opportunities for education and employment. But the story has been different for women of color and those from poor or working-class origins. These women have had to work and they have shouldered the extreme burden of being effective parents while providing financially for their families. Black women were full participants in agricultural labor during slavery, in the backbreaking work of sharecropping, and in the domestic services of Jim Crow. Even middle-class and elite Black women have typically worked as teachers, journalists, entrepreneurs, and professionals. At every level of household income, and at every point in American history, Black women have been much more likely to engage in paid labor than their white counterparts. In exchange for their labor and independence, they have been labeled with ugly terms like sapphire and matriarch, told that they are emasculating their men and punished by a public discourse that sees them as insufficiently feminine. It was within this crooked room that Michelle Obama attempted to embrace a wifely traditionalism that is unusual for black women in the public sphere.
Michelle's choice to accommodate this demand for traditionalism is also dangerous for black women who have so little space in which to speak back against patriarchy and sexism among black men. Black men face tremendous structural and personal challenges caused by racial inequality. Many of them believe that black women have a responsibility to silence their own concerns so as to ensure that black men not be given any additional burdens. Further, to the extent that Michelle Obama's apparent embodiment of traditional submission is connected to her position as first lady, her, quote, success, end quote, as a woman can be used as a rhetorical weapon against the majority of African-American women who are unmarried. If only they, like Michelle, would submit to the authority of a husband, perhaps they, too, could live a life of wealth and comfort. Michelle Obama's traditionalism could encourage the discourse that establishing appropriately patriarchal families will offer solutions to the social ills facing black communities. A glimpse of this trajectory in public discourse occurred during a Nightline special that aired April 9, 2010. The program, titled, quote, Why Can't a Successful Black Woman Find a Man, end quote, insisted that a crisis exists because 70% of professional black women are without husbands. It began with the assumption that marriage is an appropriate and universal goal for women and that any failure to achieve it must therefore be pathological. Panelists were encouraged to offer solutions without needing to articulate exactly why low marriage rates are troubling. Furthermore, given the distortions or absence of black women in most mainstream media outlets, I am skeptical that the Nightline special was motivated primarily by a desire to address the needs of African-American women. More likely, Marriage is a trope for other anxieties about respectability, economic, st economic stability, and the maintenance of patriarchy. Which social issues appear on the public agenda is never accidental. In this moment of economic crisis, social change, and racial transformation, Black women are being encouraged to embrace traditional models of family and to view themselves as deficient if their lives do not fit neatly into these prescribed roles. We got two paragraphs left and then we'll have a reflection. The solution offered most frequently by the Nightline panelists was that professional black women need to scale back their expectations. Black female success, black female success, the panelists concluded, is an impediment to finding and cultivating black love. Despite advertising itself as a news program, Nightline failed to call on any sociologist, psychologist, historian, or therapists who could have contributed context, statistics, or analysis about the, quote, marriage crisis, end quote, among African Americans. Instead, these delicate and compelling issues were addressed by comedians, actors, bloggers, and journalists. Without structural analysis or evidence-based reasoning, the panel relied on personal experience. The three male participants have all written books on the black marriage and partnership crisis. To varying degrees, all of these books frame the issue as a black female problem rather than a community issue. They encourage women to conform to a more sanitized ideal of femininity that doesn't compete with socially sanctioned definitions of masculinity. Each of these male participants was allowed to pontificate about how black women should behave without being challenged on his own relationship history and status. None of them can boast a lifetime marriage to one black woman. This personal information is relevant because personal narrative was the sole basis of the conversation. The women participating in the panel were subjected to public scrutiny of their supposed shortcomings, 
while the men's biographies were shielded by an assumption that their maleness alone made them worthy. The discussants on the show cited Michelle Obama as an example of a black woman who knew how to catch and keep a good black man. In that moment, Michelle was used as a weapon against other black women. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. What stands out to me from the passages we just read is how black individualism can be used as a weapon against black collectivism and how black respectability politics can be used as a weapon against black revolutionary politics. And we see here how in an effort for in in an effort to be to break the stereotype of the angry black woman or the domineering black woman, Michelle Obama was seen to have sort of taken more of a back seat to Barack Obama. And again, this is put, you know, putting in through the words of Melissa V. Harris Perry and through her analysis in this book. And that was used instead of that being used as just an individual example, they use her individual actions as a way to condemn the masses of black women who weren't married or the masses of black women who weren't successful uh, in, in their career paths or the masses of black women who still were dealing with poverty by saying if they were be submissive in the way that Michelle Obama is submissive, then they would be able to essentially have a better life or that that would be that that black women, and this is a, a common theme, the idea that black women are the reason that the black families are not intact or that the black women, uh, the emasculation of black men happens through the domineering characteristics of black women. All things that are just not factually true and they're, they're all things that perpetuate negative stereotypes about black women. And I think that what does stand out about this book, Sister Citizen, what stood out about women, race, and class is the importance of not allowing yourself to buy into sexist ideology in an effort to try to combat racist ideology. And that is how so many things in this society works is that sometimes you try so hard to not go right that you go too far left or you try so hard to not go left that you go too far right. And the truth of the matter is the same thing that we've talked about before is that these are all very complex issues and complicated issues that there is no simple uh, answer for. And it's not as simple as individualism being the way to solve these problems, just as it's not as simple as uh, respectability politics being the way to solve these problems. Yes, it's important as an individual that you can uh, educate yourself and inform yourself and better yourself. But if you do not have an understanding of what the collective of the people who come from your community are going through and the hindrances they have, you will find that your individual success will not translate to collective success. And the same thing goes for respectability politics. And so that's just some of my perspectives of what we read here. We will finish this book on tomorrow's episode. I think we got seven pages left, so it'll be a shorter episode. And then we will begin reading our next book, which I'm not sure what that will be yet. And I am working on trying to have 
somebody reading with me or somebody commentating with me on the next piece of literature that we read. So please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to present people the opportunity to begin and further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I will holler at you tomorrow.